trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, whether you are a seasoned wrong thinker or just, you know, sticking your toe in the water for the first time, you have found the right place. And I'm joined today by my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, Happy New Year. How are you? Happy New Year to you, too, and and also to everybody listening. And I'm happy to report that for the past week, I haven't had to agonize over how far I have left to go before the battery runs out. Yeah, so no no driving EVs this last week, then? No, I've got, <laughs> well, I've got a plug-in hybrid Jeep Grand Cherokee. And the upside to that is it behaves like a conventional car. Don't have to worry about how much range have I got left, how much time have I got to sit and wait for it to recharge. The downside is it's kind of a harbinger of where um, Stellantis, which is the parent company that owns Jeep and Dodge uh, and a number of other brands, is headed. They are putting what they call the 4XE plug-in hybrid powertrain into a number of their models, including, as regards to Grand Cherokee, the most capable off-road version, which is the Trailhawk. So if you want the Trailhawk stuff, which includes the lifted suspension, uh, locking discs, skid plates, um, all of that good stuff, you have to get that drivetrain. And here's the kick in the pants. The uh, price increase relative to uh, 2021, when you could get that package with either a V8 engine or a V6 engine, is $16,000 higher now because of the cost of the plug-in hybrid equipment. Wow, that's, that's not encouraging, is it? No, and they're having to do this. You know, they've announced, you and I have discussed this, they already announced that they're retiring the Hemi V8. <clears throat> And it's extremely likely they're going to also retire the V6 uh, so that in the future, this is going to be the way that they maintain the power. You know, it's a powerful combination. It makes 375 horsepower, and that's more power than the Hemi V8 makes, but it's much more expensive. And so effectively what they're doing is making it an exclusive vehicle for people who are affluent enough to go ahead and spend another $16,000. The base price of the thing is 65000 bucks, if you can imagine that. Uh, Pardon me, I took down some coffee in my lungs. It's not the Rona. Okay, well, you know, I was distancing just in case. Where's my mask? <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't have any of those. Um, I just took another swig. Now I can talk again. Talk to me about uh, what California is doing. I know mm-hmm. that uh, the move toward electric vehicles is, you know, all about saving the planet and clean or renewable energy. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I saw an article, I think it was last week, that uh, the, the rubber's about to meet the road in terms of what California is expecting from truckers. Yep. It's not a move. It's a push. I think it's important that we're uh, very careful about the, the modifiers and adjectives that we use. It's a push. It's a mandate. And specifically, what went into effect with the new year is a ban on all heavy trucks. You know, that means the trucks that bring you things um, that were made before the 2010, 2010 model year. They're no longer legal to operate on California roads. And it's not just uh, the ones that are in California. This applies to truckers who perhaps are going to drive to California, say to the port of L.A., uh, to pick up stuff and then bring it to other states. They are now prohibited from coming into the state unless they have a newer truck that is compliant with California's regs. So, in effect, what this means is if you've got a rig that was made in 2010 or before, basically you have to throw it away. And these are really expensive pieces of equipment. 
And now you've got to buy an even more expensive piece of equipment to the tune of you know several hundred thousand dollars is the typical cost of a big rig uh, in order to continue legally to operate on California's public roads. This is going to have a really dramatic effect on supply chains, and it's also going to have an effect on the independent owner-operator truckers who aren't going to be able to absorb this hit, and they are going to be pushed into becoming employees and thus wage serfs, which is part of this agenda. They want everybody controlled. They don't want independent, self-employed people out there. That is really scary. I mean, I look, I know California has some beautiful scenery. There's, there's a lot of amazing stuff in that state. But for the life of me, I can't imagine how any thinking human being can stay there with the, the current political vi- uh, environment. Well, nor can I, though. I've, you know, I actually can in the sense that it's really difficult to just sort of cut the cord from the familiar places, from uh, where you grew up, where you live, where you made your home. Your kids go to school here. Uh, they've got their friends down the road. Uh, it's really hard. You know, there's this, this sort of inertia of picking up sticks and, and just going. I have great sympathy now for uh, people who lived in Germany during the 20s and the 30s who could feel it, you know, who knew this was getting bad and hairy and ugly. And, you know, in retrospect, you think about it and, and ask, well, how come they just didn't leave? That's easier said than done, you know, psychologically and emotionally. Yeah, it's well, and and this is just part of an ongoing cascade of failures that uh, continues to run. I'm I'm sorry if that sounds uh, pessimistic, but I'm thinking that anybody who's watching this should at least be asking themselves, okay, what are the counter moves that I can make or how can I better solidify my position to make sure I'm not caught, uh, you know, uh, well, with an empty pantry, among other things. Well, sure. And I also think that the time has come, if not to raise the black flag to simply ignore these people and stop obeying, stop doing what they tell you to do. Um, everything from wearing the face masks uh, all the way up the food chain, just enough. Just stop doing it. Um, you know, if enough of us refuse, it becomes unenforceable. A, a really good example of this uh, is the old 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. You and I can remember that. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, for, for 20 years, from I think when it was about 1974, I think, on up to about 1994, around that time, the maximum speed limit on American highways was 55 miles an hour. But almost nobody obeyed it. You know, and even though they tried to enforce it and they gave out all kinds of tickets, eventually it became a national laughing stock, and eventually they had to repeal that. And that's why the highway speed limits are back up again. And that kind of a thing does work. It just takes a lot of people refusing to grant it legitimacy, mocking it, and disobeying it whenever they can. Okay, so I have to ask, you know, at your most optimistic do you see any potential for rolling back this shove toward uh, EVs? Yeah, I do, because I do think uh, that people are beginning to see uh, a parallel here is with the vaccines. You know, when, 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 they, when, they, when those things first came out, people like you and I probably felt like Sisyphus uh, was trying to roll that rock uphill. Uh, you know, we were facing this juggernaut of propaganda about how safe and effective uh, the vaccines were. And we were questioning it and wondering about the efficacy, wondering about the, the long-term studies and all of that sort of thing. And after a while, the truth started to percolate out. And now, of course, everybody or most people are aware of the fact that they don't work very well, that they are potentially dangerous. And there is now a lot of skepticism about it. And it's become very difficult for the government to impose the mandates that they tried to impose. They've even recently repealed it, I think, as regards the military. Um, so this sort of thing can work. We just have to be patient and we have to be committed to making it work. 
Yep, immovable in your principles, which sounds easy, but when the pressure's on, as a lot of people have learned, it, it can take some real fortitude and willingness to, to suffer, you know, for what you believe yep. to be true. Yep. You know, over we, we really received a boon with that cold weather over Christmas because not just me, but a lot of people, uh, including just ordinary people who owned electric cars or who rented them, uh, are posting stories all over the Internet uh, about what happened in the cold with driving an electric car. And it's becoming very difficult to suppress that. And I think a lot of people are starting to think, you know, wait a minute, maybe, you know, maybe I don't maybe I don't want one of these electric cars. And I think that's going to spread and propagate. Yep. I I. Uh... Well, maybe it's just the circles I run in, but uh, I haven't uh, seen nearly as many friends come forward. Hey, have you seen my new EV? Check this out. You want to go for a ride? I mean, look, I'd be happy right. for them if they did. If it's something that makes them happy, that's great. But uh, the enthusiasm just doesn't seem to be spreading like wildfire, if you get my drift. Yeah, and there's also this aspect of people being misled. You know, what, how do you feel when you've been misled or, or lied to about something? You, know, you tend to get really mad about it, don't you? And I think that's beginning to happen. People are, are finding out, hey, wait a minute, I can't charge my EV at home, or at least I can't charge it in more than a couple of days, or I'm going to have to hire an electrician to come out here, and I'm going to have to spend 1500 bucks to get a 240-volt uh, dedicated circuit put in my garage. What if I don't have a garage? Oh, so now I'm going to have to go drive to some fast charger and sit there for an hour? You know, the, People are not being told this. They weren't told this. For a long time during the initial push for electric cars, but those facts are coming out now, and and I think there is a lot of hesitancy, if you will, uh, that is being propagated as a result of those facts. Yeah, for me, the decision became a lot easier when I just realized, you know, I'm never going to win Greta Thunberg's approval, so I'm just going to stop trying. Right, exactly. <laughs> and as far as Greta goes, you, know, you can be sympathetic to this girl because she's emotionally damaged, clearly. Um, you know, she was hystericized and terrified, I think, by her parents who plopped her in front of the TV and uh, let her sit there and watch all these alarmist stories about how the earth is going to die unless we do something. But, you know, with, with, with having sympathy for her on the one hand, it's crazy to just stand there and let an emotionally damaged teenager determine the fate of the world. Yeah, even, even if she has, you know, the endorsement of Klaus Schwab and company. All right, hold that thought, Eric. When we come back, let's talk about some New Year's resolutions. I know you had a great list, yep. and I, I read through it, and I found myself nodding my head thoughtfully going, this sounds like solid advice. So we'll uh, we'll visit the New Year's resolutions with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. If you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, by the way, please go to thebrianhideshow.com. Hit the subscribe button down at the bottom of the page. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. And Eric, uh, I, I think you and I probably have had a similar approach to New Year's resolutions. Did, did you typically blow them off most years or just say, I'm not going to make I rarely even I rarely even made them, actually, to be honest with you. I just kind of, my, my resolutions occur on a rolling basis. I generally don't wait for the start of the new year to make them. Nice. And this year I find myself actually kind of evaluating, you know, maybe there are some things that I'm going to have to step up and change. I was looking at your recent yep. column of some New Year's resolutions, and I think these are spot on. 
I think you you actually uh, you put some serious thought into some resolutions that uh, hopefully will inspire others to to likewise consider. Well, maybe there are some things that I should you know take a, take a bit of a stand on. Where where shall we begin? Well, let's begin with uh, the one that the left, the political left, used to always say: question authority. Remember that? Oh yeah. I think that's a really good resolution to make going forward. Uh, if we've learned anything, it is that we should question what people in authority are telling us because they have proved to be either uh, obtuse and incompetent or malicious. So, you know, simply to agree to do whatever they say is necessary is foolish. Uh, we should make an obligation to ourselves, our families, our children to the future to demand answers, not assertions. If they tell us that something is necessary, we need to ask why, and they had better be able to produce a legitimate, solid answer uh, and not shame us and not try to scare us into doing whatever it is they say we have to do. Amen. I'm actually going to be sharing a little bit later on in the program uh, an article written by Michael Kelly down, or Mike Kelly, I guess is his name, down in, um, uh, I believe he's in uh, Australia, talking about uh, how whatever suggestion, whatever directive, but especially those that come with some kind of a penalty, or, you know, some kind of punishment if you don't obey, those are the ones we need to be questioning most carefully. And if if people had done this, the last three years wouldn't have been nearly as traumatic. That's right, and the future can be much better. Most people are not stupid, and most people are not reckless. We don't need to be threatened with something uh, if it's in our interest to do it. We don't drive on bald tires and bad brakes, and we don't go into the hantavirus suite uh, without a full hazmat suit on. So, you know, this idea uh, that we're, we're just too stupid to understand what's in our own best interest uh, is, is absurd and it's offensive and it needs to be dismissed and rejected out of hand, particularly when we know it's no longer a question of assertion. We know that these people who claim to be possessed of superior knowledge that are supposedly smarter than us have proved not to be. I mean, look at what we were, we were told by the science, by Fauci, by the, the, the scarf lady, by uh, Walensky, the CDC, every last thing that they told us was true has proved to be false. And if that doesn't tell us something, I don't know what will. That's an excellent point. You also pointed out something that I thought was was really on task, especially with some of the economic challenges that are, that are looming over us right now, and that is uh, you resolve to reduce what you spend and become more yep. independent, less dependent on, on centralized systems. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a really important thing, and I'm grateful that I've been practicing that in my own life for a long time. Of course, I'm self-employed, and so that gave me the power when uh, things got really hairy in 2020 and 21. Uh, it made it easier for me to refuse to put that mask on my face or, or to play any of their, their kabuki because my boss is me, and my boss did not tell me to put on a mask. And I understand that not everybody can be self-employed. However, um, if you put your financial house in order, you won't be as dependent on whatever job you happen to have. And if it becomes intolerable, whether it's because of a mask mandate or some other reason, if you have the, the cushion, you can always say, you know what, this isn't working for me. I'm going to find another job. I'm going to live in a different area. Wow. And, of course, you know, normally I put this off because I know I'm not going to act on it. This year, though, I'm serious. I've got to take better care of myself physically. There, there are some improvements I've got to make. I see that uh, you've, you've resolved that you're going to do that as well. Yeah, and that's also really important. Again, uh, people have, have been conditioned or taught over the past three years that the way to preserve your health is to put a mask over your face and take a shot. 
It's not to stop buying a case of high fructose laden soda pop and chips and eat that and, and not take care of your body. Take care of your health, take care of your body, and you probably won't have to worry about things like uh, viruses. Uh, you know, they're not a threat to most people. It's not a serious threat. You might get the sniffles. You might get the cold, uh, but you're not going to die. And so you don't need any of these things. And that's the scale. Uh, the better care you take of yourself, the less need you're going to have for the white coats. You know, and that's as important uh, as being independent in terms of your economics as far as your job goes. I like how you put it that it's this is not a matter of vanity. It's a matter of prudence. Yes. And it is. It absolutely is. You know, I don't go to the gym to preen in front of the mirror. I go to the gym because I'm not afraid of getting old. I'm afraid of getting feeble. And so I take care of myself and I lift weights and I run uh, so as to maintain my strength and stamina. And, you know, it's a wonderful thing to, you know, to have the strength and stamina at 50 uh, that I had when I was 30. And, you know, that's a gift you can give to yourself. Yep. It's a, it's a, I, I know you have, uh, I've, I've actually admired the fact that you've been one of the guys who's been consistently working out and even through injuries and stuff, you know, you still, you put a, a very high priority on, uh, on maintaining fitness. And as someone who has been, can I, can I just say a little comfortable for the last couple of years, um, yep. there's, there's a pretty steep, uh, curve that I've got to work my way up in, in getting moving, but it's worth it. And, and I started by, it's so by worth it going out snowshoeing and, and cross-country skiing a week or so ago, and it just dang near killed me. But at the same time, it felt good to move. It felt good to, to sweat. I was going to say, it's not just physical. It's also psychological. I, I'm a pretty serious runner. I go out every other day, and I run out in the woods. I've got a trail through my property. And it is invigorating, not just physically, but emotionally and psychologically, to be out there in nature, you know, to just be by myself in the trees, amongst the, the birds and the creatures that are out there, amongst the quiet. And I can think and I can reflect and I can feel the sun on my face and I can feel the wind. And that, I think, is a real boon. You know, there's a lot of evidence that people who feel good psychologically also feel good physically and tend to be healthier than people who aren't. Here, here. And and it's it's one of those areas of our lives. I know there's very few places where we feel like I still have control of my life here, uh, thanks to, you know, big brother, big mother, yeah. big government uh, being there for everything. But it, it feels good to assert that uh, autonomy. Absolutely. You know, the more control that we have over ourselves and the thing that things that affect us, the less control they, and when I say they, I mean these, these institutional interwoven centralized control apparatuses uh, have over us. And that, I do believe, is the long-term key uh, to restoring uh, what, what used to be America and can be again. All right, I got one final thing I wanted to bring to your attention. And I, are you familiar with Ken Block? Do you know who Ken Block is? Uh, refresh my memory, I don't think so. This is the guy who does the uh, amazing driving stuff, Jim Khanna. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I have some bad news. I'm sorry to say. Uh, apparently, he was killed in a snowmobile accident in uh, Utah yesterday while on vacation oh. with his family. But I, I wanted to ask you if you were familiar with him, and I'm glad to hear that you are, just because I yeah. know beneath that uh, suave and sophisticated exterior, uh, you also, like me, are a, a young kid who loves horsepower <laughs> and, yeah. and speed and tire smoke. At heart. Yeah, you know, and, and the Gymkhana stuff, essentially, that's like training for road racing. Uh, you know, it's, it's about it's about doing autocrossing stuff, and there's no better time to be had behind the wheel of a car than doing that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I'm just going to recommend for people who haven't heard of him, uh, jump on YouTube, look up Ken Block, and you will see some absolute jaw-dropping driving feats. And a guy who was living life to the fullest, and sadly, uh, yeah. you know, he... he uh, is is no longer among us. I, I hope this isn't a harbinger for for how twenty twenty three is is going to take off. Seems like there's already been some some pretty interesting uh, departures, even though it's very early well, in the year. Well, at least he didn't die suddenly, if you know what I mean. You know, yes. he, his family has the consolation of knowing it was because of a uh, an act of God, an accident, and not because of a vaccine. Here, here. Well, here's to a uh, healthy and happy new year, Eric. Great to talk with you as always. Likewise, Brian. Thank you for having me on. All right. That's Eric Peters from ericpetersauto.com, ericpetersautos.com. I have a link in my show notes. I hope you'll check it out. Spend some time, read the articles, read the comments. You'll be happier and you'll be wiser at the end of the day for having done so. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to give a quick shout-out to MonticelloCollege.org as well as LifesavingFood.com, two of the fine sponsors of this program. I do appreciate everything they do to help me keep the lights on. And by the way, I want to give a shout-out to each and every individual or family, as the case may be, who takes the time to to become a supporter of this program. I, I don't spend a lot of time asking, hey, you know, donate five bucks a month and subscribe. But there are people who do this and they do it primarily through, I think, the Spotify app. There's there's an option to do, to do so. I just want you to know how much I appreciate that. Uh, my goal never has been to, to get filthy rich and, you know, taunt Greta Thunberg and drive around in lots of fancy cars and stuff like that. Nope. Nope. Um, my goal here is to speak the truth as efficiently and as bravely as I possibly can. And that is so much easier to do when I'm not having to pull, you know, uh, an extra shift or two down at the, uh, you know, stop and rob up the road. That uh, that really makes a huge difference. So thank you. And I will now move on. A lot of the sources of our information, this is particularly true of the sources of mass information, seem to be working very hard to convince us that humankind is hopelessly evil racist or broken. Maybe you've kind of caught on to that. Paul Rosenberg has a great alternative on how to look at the human story from a post-primate perspective. Now, I know some people, I don't believe in evolution, but I want you to hear him out on this. It's actually, there's a new book he's written called Post-Primate Society, and this is the introduction to the book, the overture, if you will. Here's what he says. He starts with a quote from Buckminster Fuller from Cosmography. The dark ages still reign over all humanity, and the depth and persistence of this domination are only now becoming clear. Here's another quote. This is from William Shakespeare from Simon the Zealot. The golden age is before us, not behind us. Now, Paul Rosenberg says humanity is just now hitting its stride, or at least we're threatening to. We approached it before World War I, and then suffered through a long, ugly period over the past couple of generations. However, our leading edges have started to push through the thorns and weeds, and he says there's a reasonable chance that we'll make it this time. But even if this attempt fails, one of the generations that follows us will make it. Post-primate society is coming. It's just a question of when. 
Now, he says, this much is certain, because the development of mankind, of the human race, has been nothing short of spectacular. We have risen so fast that any other conclusion must stand upon a demand for gloominess and depression. But he says the long-term record is clear, and in fact, it's shocking. He says, I'll go through the facts about humankind's meteoric rise in movement one. This is speaking of the book. But he says it's one of the more obvious facts to be seen in this world. In fact, the only way people avoid seeing mankind this way is to insist that mankind is not part of the natural world, but is some some type of unspecified other, so we can be more harshly judged. Seeing the human as part of nature, there's no getting around the fact that our development spectacularly exceeds that of anything and everything else. So he says, whoever resents us proclaiming the exceptional nature of mankind, and many do, it's true all the same. Reality doesn't bend to the demands of the pompous and the imposing. Now, he says, it's also true that the fundamental drivers of our transition are already with us. And one of those, I love this example, is the golden rule. This formulation has been used for thousands of years by nearly every moral teacher of note, and it's used by nearly all of us on a daily basis. If nothing else, we continually see it as, well, he wouldn't like it if I did it to him. Now, he says, I'm not going to make this a treatise on morality, but the golden rule is crucial for two reasons. Number one, it's universal, comprehensible, and effective. Number two, it leads us directly into post-primate life. He says, contrary modes of life and morality are widely enforced, of course, and they not coincidentally support primate society rather than post-primate society. So these contrary moralities chain us to a primate past rather than assisting us into a post-primate future. Now again, he says there's more to be said on this subject. This isn't the best place to do so, so we need to move on. But the importance of this should not be passed up. Moving from primate life to an elevated and better life is not something to be sacrificed to loud and imposing voices. No matter how high and mighty the opponent of progress may be, he, she, or they is to be ignored. Human ascent is far bigger than the, potent, than the potentate of the moment, whomever that may be, and however they may glorify themselves. Now, he says it's also telling that chosen societies, in other words, arrangements that people build and maintain because they want them, flow directly into post-primate life. And likewise, that enforced societies, in other words, within arrangements enforced by those sitting at the tops of hierarchies, are sustaining the primate model of life on this planet. So chosen society cultivates benevolence, confidence, and competence, while enforced society generates fear, intimidation, and compliance. Post-primate society then is better for the organism, while primate society is better for the machine. I really like that distinction, by the way. All of that said, Paul Rosenberg says, our development will continue into post-primate life, and the facts imply that it's even accelerating. So in his book, he says, we'll examine the transitions of mankind from where we started to where we've come to where we're going. He says, you'll find a great deal of support for the ideas I've presented here, but first another point should be asserted. We've already exited our primate phase and are presently in a hybrid phase. But his point is we can't go back. Our choice is now between entropy and a kind of divinity. Now, to be clear, He says, divinity, as we're using it here, refers to the active and willful transcendence of entropy, which is a core operation of advancing and advanced humans. But he says it also refers to the angelic characteristics that form within people who operate this way. 
However we choose to describe these things, and we lack clear terminology, they are real. They are potent, and they are spreading within us. Entropy, to be clear, he says, is a winding down of available energy, like a battery losing its charge, areas of hot and cold becoming lukewarm, and so on. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, in fact, we've known for some time that good habits travel in clusters, reinforcing each other. This is true of the mind and things of the body, or things of the mind and things of the body, and for the links between them. For example, we know that exercise, willpower, and other good habits uh, link together and strengthen one another. With no way back to primate life, he says, we face two choices. We can become angelic, or we can slide into deep stagnation, into brightly colored concentration camps with endless distractions and a perpetual soundtrack where life isn't particularly nasty, only sometimes brutish and not necessarily short, but where it's all illusion, all vicarious and all externally derived, where life isn't really life at all. But while some people will choose this type of entropy rather than divinity, that model will not dominate for very long since people living that way don't do much except eat, immerse themselves in fantasies, and die. Such modes of life aren't sustainable. One way or another, post-primate society is coming. It can be delayed, as indeed it has been, but it will not be stopped. And the people who attain it, whether it be us or our successors, will resemble angels when compared with peoples of the past. So he says we should additionally consider that post-primate characteristics are already with us, What we're becoming isn't actually foreign to us. Creativity, benevolence, tolerance, patience, a belief in human dignity, the ability to experience wonder and awe. These characteristics are indeed angelic, and we know them fairly well. Furthermore, this transition of ours does not demand that we shed our blood, climb impossible mountains, and spend every last ounce of our strength. On the contrary, it requires that we stop wasting our strength on primate model beliefs And once we pull ourselves away from the habits that abuse us, our lives will become easier, more productive, more peaceful, deeper, and a lot less frightening. The model of the primate, he says, to state it briefly, is hierarchy. And a model of the post-primate is decentralized, voluntary interactions. So we'll shortly deal with the intricacies of these descriptions, he says, but they will hold. And aside from mankind's religious devotion to hierarchy, we all know it's a flawed model. Most of us complain about it on a daily basis. And so we really are threatening to hit our stride. We've been moving away from dominance hierarchies and into decentralized arrangements that treat humans as primaries, not as secondaries. And a great number of us have grasped that we shouldn't live as auto-reaction machines prodded from one outrage to to another. The leading edge refers to movements toward decentralization. And we've seen a long stream of them. We've seen businesses trying to flatten and re-engineer, the internet blasting through information bottlenecks, Bitcoin's radical decentralization, Abraham Maslow's findings that human health is inverse to control, Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, free market economics, the repeating failures of socialist or command economies, even the reluctant movement of historians away from the potentates at the top of hierarchies to the people who grew, built, and invented everything. He says there are more than a dozen others that are recognitions that decentralized interactions are far more central to human thriving than hierarchical alternatives. But he says the main fact is decentralized society rests upon human virtue, while hierarchical hierarchical society rests upon human weakness. Isn't that a powerful essay? 
I've got a link to it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thanks once again for tuning in today. You know, it's not uncommon to see a sense of entitlement and lack of work ethic in children today. I'm not just complaining because my sink is full of dishes right now, and by gosh, nobody but me will touch them. (laughs) Although sometimes it feels that way. Annie Holmquist actually has a great explanation on why so many American kids respect nothing. Now, please understand, this is not supposed to be old man shakes his fist and yells at clouds, you know. It's, it's an interesting observation she makes here about that lack of respect and how we can raise children who don't, uh, don't suffer from that particular malady. And he says, for the last 20 years or so, there's been one regular item on my Christmas list, and that item is the usual, the annual, rather, anthology of old-fashioned Christmas stories entitled Christmas in My Heart. She says, the series has been running for over a quarter century now, and even if I don't ask for the latest edition, my family fulfills the unspoken wish, instinctively knowing that Christmas wouldn't quite be Christmas without it. So while reading this year's edition, she says, I came across a short story composed by Noel Shanko, a writer from Florida, who recounted the Christmas when he was 13. Now, Shanko's family had moved to a government housing project during World War II, and although his father had a steady job, luxuries were out of the question. The family's belongings were a hodgepodge, likely cobbled together from secondhand stores and other items that had been discarded. It was because of this motley assemblage that Shanko was attracted to a beautiful silverware set in a local store window. Although the silver cost $100, about $1,000 today, he determined to buy it for his mother for Christmas. Now, for a boy who only had a dollar to his name, that was a steep task. Undaunted, Shanko began paying for his layaway item by picking up as many jobs as he could find. He started a paper route. He canvassed for new subscribers, earning 50 cents for each one he recruited. He planted a tomato garden with his father and sold the produce for 10 cents a pound. He earned another 10 cents for every lawn he mowed and every bushel of kindling he sold. These nickels, dimes, and quarters accumulated over the year. Finally, a few weeks before Christmas, he purchased the set and brought home the precious package. And then Christmas finally came. This is from his story. Quote, On Christmas morning, I was up early. It was my job to hand out the presents, and naturally, I saved my silver for last. Then the time came. I pulled out the chest from under the tree and said, Mama, this is for you. I watched as she unwrapped that gift and lifted the lid. The only words that I can use to describe Mother's face are amazement, disbelief, and parental pride. Tears ran down her cheeks as she hugged and kissed me again and again. In years to come, as a father and grandfather, I've come to more fully understand how overwhelmed she must have felt. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, after reading this story, it's hard not to ponder the difference between being a kid in the 1940s and one today. For starters, many kids would not even likely notice a set of silverware in a shop window. Extracurricular activities and digital toys regularly keep many children occupied. These same activities often prevent them from going out and getting an after-school or summer job. But there's one major factor which underlies all of these things, namely the respect and honor for parents. 
As Shenko implies in an earlier part of the story, his parents were not able to give him a lot in terms of worldly goods. What they did give him, however, was character. They instilled discipline through their own example, working selflessly side by side with their children, not allowing them to give in when the going got tough. In all likelihood, it was this discipline and hard work which planted the desire for Shenko to express such an overwhelming outpouring of love to his mother through his gift. While there are still some loyal, respectful kids out there who honor their parents in a similar way, Annie says, I think it's safe to say that such respect is rare. So is it possible to raise children who, re- who exhibit the respect, work ethic, and lack of entitlement that Shanko demonstrated as a young teen? A young teen, rather? She says, I think it is. But are Americans willing to abandon the kinder, gentler, let-me-be-your-friend approach to parenting that's been adopted in recent years in order to do so? She says, the fact of the matter is, we will never have children who love and respect others, especially their parents if we teach them to love and respect their own selves first and foremost. That's an interesting take. Well, I want my kid to love himself, or I want her to love herself. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I think there's there's validity to what Annie's saying here, because if you want them to be able to, to have the self-awareness to see others and see that they matter too, that's something we got to show them by example. They can't be lectured into having great character. It's something they've got to observe for themselves. I know, actions speak louder than words, yada, yada, yada. You get the, you get the picture. All right, one final note that I wanted to share with you. I just thought this was such a great article. This is from Richard Kelly. This was on uh, Brownstone Institute's website, brownstone.org. It sounds subversive when I suggest that mindless obedience is what brings humanity's great sorrows. But it's true. And Richard Kelly, writing from Australia, suggests we resolve to think carefully about every suggestion and directive, especially those that come with penalties. He asks, have you ever wondered about where our beliefs come from? What drives the way we frame the events we witness? What impact our worldview has on our actions and what meaning can we ascribe to our actions? How do our behaviors become normalized and adopted by the masses? Now, he says, I was at the Melbourne Cricket Ground on Boxing Day. I saw a mass coordinated synchronous costume display of standing and clapping, a waving of wide-brimmed sun hats. Seemingly, all it took to make the best part of 65,000 members of the human race join this activity was a request from the ground announcer over the public address system. Shane Warren, 52 years old, one of the best bowlers ever to play the game, had died suddenly, like so many others recently, earlier in the year. His career number was 350. In other words, he was the 350th player to earn a test cap to play for Australia. So through some tortured logic resembling resembling numerology, at 10 minutes to 4 o'clock or 3.50 p.m., the players and crowd engaged in a brief display of clapping and waving a particular type of sun hat preferred by the late spin bowler. Shane Warne is sadly dead. He couldn't witness or appreciate the clapping or hat waving. So why did all those people clap? To show their appreciation of their bowlings of his bowling skills, I hear you say. Well, we did that every time he took a wicket, didn't we? Okay, then, to show others that we loved him and we'll miss him. Sure, sure. But will those others do anything different or help us or receive help from us in any way? He says, I don't think so. At best, anyone who had felt alone in their sorrow about Warren's death might have gained some comfort from the fact that thousands of other people were clapping. So why did you clap, really? 
Was it because someone told you to? Because everyone else was doing it and Warney was a good bloke and you needed to stretch your legs after sitting for so long? Well, he says good blokes die every day. The proper place for grief and remembrance and celebration is at funerals, wakes, and private intimate moments alone or with those who knew the deceased. There have already been many of these opportunities for cricket fans to honor Warren's memory. Those who wanted to actively remember Shane Warren deliberately went out of their way to watch the tribute shows, watch the funeral service in their own time with friends and family or alone in their grief for life ended too soon. In fact, he says, for me, I cried over my coffee on the morning the news broke and I couldn't bear to watch the tributes. But he said this MCG affair was different. On command, at a precise moment, 65,000 people who had bought tickets to a cricket match stood up and clapped and waved their hats. Now, that's a powerful demonstration of how people can be convinced to do something quite without any reason or rhyme. Why 3.50 p.m.? Why not the fifty? Why not in the 52nd over since he died at age 52 or when the score passes 23, given that was the number he wore on his shirt? Why not the precise moment when he was found dead? Why wave a hat? Why not swing a stump around like he did on the balcony at Trent Bridge? Why not swig a beer or light a cigarette? Warney liked those too. Okay, the answer, because someone, we don't know who, we were never asked, told you to. In truth, we are inclined to do what we are told. Now, I'm going to cut to the chase here. He says, we seem to have this propensity to fall in line with suggestions and directives even more so without even thinking too hard about it. But unless we think, we risk falling into compliance with directives that turn out to be not good for us or for others. We've seen many examples of directives these past three years. Stay six feet apart. Don't go to a wedding. Shut down your business. Don't visit your mom. Turn around at the state border. Get a test. Don't get a test. Isolate for seven days. Don't isolate. Don't go to the office. Follow the arrows around the office. Don't wear a mask. Wear a mask. Don't touch the football if it's kicked into the crowd. Don't do elective surgery. Shut your church. Don't admit some people into your shop. Don't stand up to drink. Don't leave home after 9 p.m. Don't go further than five kilometers from home. Don't play golf. Don't bother with vitamin D. Don't, or rather, stay inside. Don't get out in the sun. Take this injection and this one and this one. Don't call us until you can't breathe. Now, he says we should think about each and every suggestion, every directive, even or perhaps especially those that come with penalties for noncompliance. Reason being, the world may have looked very different if we had. I know there's a lot of Australian terms and references in sports, and I'm not into cricket, but you get the point that he's saying, right? Why do we do things just because everybody else is doing it or somebody told us to? Maybe we should think a little harder. This is The Brian Hyde Show.